Well, as we gather together now to open God's word, I'd ask if you would bow with me in a word of prayer. Oh, sovereign Lord, we thank you that you have ordained for us to be here together this morning. And indeed, we want to praise your name with all that is within us. We want our voices and our hearts to be aligned, that we might rejoice and delight in all that you are. Not just to say the words of your greatness, but to feel deep down in our bones that there is nothing good besides you. And Father, we treasure the fact that through Christ, we are able to know you. I pray now as we open your word that you would cause your word to speak to us. Teach us, Lord, that we might live faithfully in this day for your glory's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the past few years, Christians around the globe have had to think more carefully about the relationship between the church and the state. How and when should Christians obey the government? Is it all the time? Every time? Is it ever right for Christians to disobey the authorities? If so, when? COVID and the pandemic that ensued following its introduction into the world exposed the fact that many of us did not have a robust understanding of the Bible's teaching on these matters. We had to suddenly go to school and get some quick uh, understanding of what do the scriptures say regarding the government and what God has ordained the government to do. But as we've seen in our day and as we look through church history, we see the Christians have landed in different sides of these questions. In the two centuries of the church, since the writing of the New Testament, Christians have wrestled with this question. And different Christians in different times and in different countries and places have taken different approaches. Let me just highlight two extremes for us this morning. On one side, there's a theological tradition that teaches that Christians can't be involved in government at all. That they teach that the, the government is inherently evil and that anything that's connected to government and the state is participating in evil. These Christians typically pull out of the world as much as they can, form their own separate communities and seek to be as removed from politics, as far removed from politics as possible. Some may even refuse to vote, refuse to pay taxes because they want no part in supporting wicked governments. Historically, Anabaptist communities have taken some of these positions, not all of them, but some of them. But there's another side of the spectrum. If this one is, is total disengagement from politics and the state, believing the state is evil, the other side, uh, another tradition that teaches that Christians should seek to take over and to run government. That it is God's mission upon the earth uh, for Christians to be fully engaged in them, not removed from politics. Historically, this is what the church went into in what is known as the Roman Catholic Church through the Middle Ages. It operated this way. The church and the state were so united that they were often ruled by one man. 
both the state and the church. And so there was a complete linkage of the church and the state, an overlap. However, I believe that the teaching of the Bible doesn't allow for either of these approaches. And I think the Apostle Paul is a good illustration of what the Bible teaches regarding our relationship to God and to the state. You'll know, remember that Paul, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 that our citizenship is where? It's in heaven, right? He says our citizenship is in heaven. And yet, you would think from that that he's renounced all earthly citizenship. But that's not the case. Acts chapter 22, it's very clear that he appeals to his Roman citizenship. He's about to get beaten and he says, hey, is it lawful to beat a Roman citizen? And they'll go, eh, put on the brakes. Wait, what did you say? And so I believe that he showed us, even in his, those two juxtaposition uh, examples there, that, that there's a possibility for Christians to be a citizen of heaven and yet also be a citizen of a nation on earth. And so it's true for us today as well. We are ultimately citizens of a heavenly kingdom we will inherit one day. But we are also citizens of the United States of America. And these are not in conflict with one another. The New Testament does not see that there is a conflict between our heavenly citizenship and our earthly citizenship. Or I should say there shouldn't be a conflict between our heavenly citizenship and our earthly citizenship. Now there is much that can be said on this topic of the church and the state of Christians and government and uh, we are not going to be able to get into all of it this morning. I mean just, just in terms of surveying all that the Bible has to say from Genesis to Revelation uh, would take a number of weeks, much more to then seek to apply them to the number of circumstances. The circumstances, uh, maybe historically, that you've read about, take for example Christians in Nazi Germany and all the implications there. How are Christians supposed to operate in that sort of time period? You could think about current day examples and we could think about all the hypotheticals of what if a government did this? What if Christians have to do that? And we're not going to be able to go down all of those rabbit trails today. There's a reason that many trees have been killed and ink spilled in trying to sort out these matters and it's because they're complex and the right course of action is not always clear and Christians in some of these matters can land rightly on different sides because they are gray. There are some black and white issues that we all need to see that the Bible teaches clearly on and then in terms of the application of them there are some gray areas and that's where Christians can rightly differ. This morning, our consecutive exposition of the Gospel of Luke lands us in a text that is foundational to all these discussions. And so this is not a topic that I suddenly chose for this morning. This is something that God in his providence landed on our doorstep as we have been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Now this text is far from comprehensive. It leaves much to be desired in terms of answers and prescriptions. It's merely a beginning point, but it is a key beginning point, but a launching point nonetheless. And so with that as introduction, I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Luke chapter 20. 
Gospel of Luke chapter 20, verse 19. Our text this morning, just to set the context for us before we drop into this individual text, I just want to remind you that this text recounts the events that took place on Tuesday of Jesus' final uh, week before his crucifixion. He was welcomed as a king into Jerusalem by a crowd of Jewish, Jewish pilgrims on Sunday, what we know as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And if that's on Sunday, he's then going to be nailed upon a cross by Friday. Our text is here right in the middle on Tuesday as he is sparring with the religious leaders. He has cleared out the temple on Monday, put a shot across the bow to the religious leaders, and they are furious. If they were furious from his three and a half years of ministry previous, it's only amped up a degree here in these final days. And they are bloodthirsty. And so they continue to try their way to get into Jesus. And we have here another run-in between the two parties. Between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so let's begin by reading the text before us. We'll be reading verses 19 through verse 26. So follow along as I read Luke 20 verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told them, told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Folks, in this passage, we see Jesus masterfully outduel his opponents. They have murder in their hearts. Their, their eyes have turned red with rage. And they've come to hem him in, to do him in. And he evades them with unmatched skill. And it's in particularly his, his wise answer that he gives to these powerful men that we gain valuable insight from our Lord on how we are to navigate the relationship between our Lord in heaven and the Lord, the lesser lords who are here on earth. Between God and Caesar. And so this morning in this text... We're going to see three stages of Jesus' conflict with these religious leaders. Three stages of conflict in this particular incident. And as we look at these three stages, we're, we're going to see that it reveals how we are to navigate our responsibilities to God and our responsibilities to the government here on earth. Important for us to understand. So let's begin by looking at the first stage of this conflict. And we see this in verses 19 through 22, and that is Jesus' sticky situation. 
The first stage of this conflict is Jesus' sticky situation. As we saw last week, he's just finished telling a parable. He told a little story about a man who owned a vineyard and he set up some tenant farmers to take care of that. And then he wanted the fruit that came at harvest time and so he sent servants to go receive the fruit. And so they sent the first servant, he was beaten up and sent back. He sent a second servant, he was beaten up and sent. A third servant, beaten as well. And so finally the, the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? I guess I will send my beloved son. He sends his son and when they see him, they say, this is the heir, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Jesus telling this of what would take place to these religious leaders because it says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to these wicked farmers? He's going to come and destroy them. This was a prophecy in the mouth of Jesus that the very religious leaders who were there staring at him would be judged by God because they would kill God's beloved son. And so coming off of this bold parable in which he defiantly rebukes the religious leaders, Jesus' situation becomes increasingly sticky. And there's two aspects that make it sticky. First is the threat to destroy Jesus' life. There's a threat, and this is made clear in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to move forward instantly in that very hour and arrest him. Chapter 19, verse 47 says they wanted to destroy him. They didn't just want to take him outside the city and send him on his way. They wanted to murder him. They should have, upon hearing this parable, dropped to their knees in repentance and said, what are we doing? Why would we kill God's only son? But instead, their hearts are hardened. A new a new level of stone comes over their heart. But the only thing that holds them back is the people. He was popular among the crowds and they knew that if they turned against Jesus, the crowds would turn against them and so they, they held their tongue. Which means that if the people weren't there, they would have lunged at Jesus instantly, right then and there. And so because of the protection of the crowd, they got to regroup. Oh, their rage wants them to go, but they got to pull back and figure out what they're going to do now. And so they have to find another way to go at him. But we can't lose sight of this fact that as Jesus moves and has these teachings, that he's got his murderers functionally with their murder weapons in their hands, so to speak. They're right there. And yet Jesus doesn't flinch. Jesus isn't running away. Jesus is taking them head on with a godly boldness. It's like the wolves are circling their prey. And different ones are lunging, taking their nips at him. But one by one they miss. But the circle keeps getting smaller. Is Jesus going to survive as these wolves continue to move in? Well, Jesus' situation is sticky because of the threat to destroy his life. But secondly, because of the trap to catch Jesus' words. They're, they're setting a trap. And this is where we learn of their new strategy. The, the previous strategy didn't work. They're regrouping and here they lunge at him again in verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they send spies to infiltrate the crowd. 
They, this will enable them to hear everything that Jesus has said. They can keep eyes on his whereabouts. But they're not just sent on a listening mission. They're not just supposed to stand back and keep their ears perked. They are there to lay a snare for Jesus to step in. Now, who were these spies? We learned from the other gospels, particularly Matthew, that this is the disciples of the Pharisees as well as the Herodians. Now, this is an odd couple to be joined together in a mission. The Pharisees were the ultra-religious ultra-nationalist, very pro-Israel. The Herodians were part of the ruling class and they were pro-Rome because they wanted to keep their, themselves in power. And so you have a pro-Rome and pro-Israel group that are joined together. What brings them together? It's their hatred for Jesus. Jesus has threatened both of their, their hold on power. You see, by claiming to be the Messiah sent from heaven, Jesus threatened the, the Pharisees' religious power over the people. The people, Jesus was calling them to follow him and to listen to him. Don't listen to those Pharisees. They're blind guides, Jesus said. And so the Pharisees felt personally attacked. But so too did the Herodians because uh, they, they felt the political attack upon their hold of power because Jesus claimed to be the messianic king. He claimed to be the one ruler, the one that, that, that people should follow and listen to. And so if Jesus went forward with his claims, Rome would come and rule with a tighter fist and would get rid of the current ruling class. And the Herodians didn't want that. And so these groups get together and they send representatives to pose as sincere inquirers. To all those around the crowd, they probably thought these men were, 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 were innocent question askers. They were probably decent actors. And they had a sincere look on their face and they, they said, they, they, they really wanted to know Jesus' answer to this. But their motives were far from innocent. Luke makes it clear they pretended to be sincere so that they might coax Jesus to walk right into this trap and he'll step in it and then he's caught. They thought they could catch Jesus unsuspecting. Oh, how foolish they are. And it says, what would they do when they catch him? They're going to take him straight to the governor, who is Pilate. They want Pilate, the Romans, to take care of him. And so, it would be highly convenient for them, right? We, listen, we want to get rid of Jesus. Let's have him trip himself up in his own words, and then he'll functionally sign his own death warrant. We can kind of just go over and uh, do a little tattletale to Pilate, and everything will be clean and over. That's what they're hoping for. Verse 21 and 22 tells us how they go about laying the trap, this trap. Look at verse 21. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Here they respect, they address him with a respectful title. They then highlight three things. They say that he teaches the way of God accurately. They talk about his accuracy and the correctness of his teaching. They then talk about his lack of partiality. Uh, literally, he doesn't receive a face. He's not affected by other people and other people's opinions. He, the fear of man is not found in him. And he teaches the way of God truthfully. These are certainly all good things to be said. But we already know they don't believe a lick of it. They don't actually believe that Jesus teaches the true way of God. Because what would they do if that were true? 
What, if they truly believe these things, they would have to follow Jesus. They would have to submit to him. They would, they would truly be confessing him as Lord, but they're not doing that. They're just flattering him. And so after buttering him up in verse 21, they go for the kill and give him the poison-laced question in verse 22. Look at it with me. It says, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? I can almost imagine that there's kind of like a, a, a murmur goes throughout the crowd. People go, ooh, what's Jesus going to do now? They ask him a simple question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now this tribute is what's known as a tribute or poll tax. It was a tax that Rome required of all people in their empire to pay once a year, a denarius once a year. And it was required because the emperor there in Rome wanted all the peoples across the entire Roman Empire to be reminded, if at no other time of the year, at least once a year, that they are submitted to Rome. And so they've, it's got to hit them where it counts. And so they've got to pull out a money out of their pocket and they got to pay it to Rome directly. And it has to be paid with a Roman denarius. And so the Jews hated this tax. They hated it because it reminded them of their Gentile overlords and that they weren't free. But they didn't just hate this tax for political reasons, they hated it for religious reasons as well because the Roman currency uh, that they paid the tax um, that they paid that tax with was uh, represented the, the emperor as divine. On that, those coins, it had inscriptions that, that told of the divinity of the emperor. And so as they paid that tax and as they gave that denarius, they felt like they were supporting the idolatrous cult found in Rome. And so in the minds of the spies, they come up, they, they drop this trap and they think there's only two questions or two answers to this dilemma. And they believe that each one is going to get Jesus in trouble. So they, they set the trap, they stand back and watch with a smirk on their face and going, there's no way out of this. If he answered yes, yes, you should pay the tax to Caesar. Then Jesus would certainly lose his popularity with the people. Again, the people hated this tax. And so if Jesus uh, said, yes, we should pay it to, to, to Caesar, then the people would boo him off and believe that he's not the Messiah they thought he was. Remember, just a couple days prior, he was welcomed into Jerusalem as the messianic king, the one who would deliver them from Rome. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the, the Lord. And so an insistence to pay the tax would be highly unpopular. But if he gave the answer that the people wanted him to give, which was, no, don't pay the tax to Rome, well, what's the consequences of that? Rome's going to say, um, excuse me? Excuse me? Yes, you are going to pay that tax. And no, you're not going to teach that to other people that they shouldn't. He's going to be seen as an insurrectionist, as a seditious ringleader. And I believe that as we just read in verse 20, that this is the answer that they expected Jesus to give, that they wanted him to give. They wanted him to trip himself up with Rome. 
For him to say, no, we don't have to pay it to Rome because Rome is an evil, idolatrous nation. And so we give our allegiance to God and so we don't pay to this wicked government. And they were ready to arrest him as soon as he said that. Again, I believe they fully expected Jesus to give that answer because they thought Jesus is going to want to keep his popularity with the people. He wouldn't do anything to threaten his popularity. He's going to continue to, to surge forward in this way. And I believe that the narrative confirms that this is the answer that the, these leaders thought Jesus would give because if you flip quickly to, to chapter 23, we're in chapter 20, if you just glance over in 23, Verse 2, look at what they will accuse Jesus of saying. They say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Did Jesus say this? No. He never, said, he never forbade them from giving tribute to Caesar, but they put it in his mouth because this is functionally what they want him to say course those lies will gain traction but flipping back to chapter 20 this isn't the answer that Jesus the answer they wanted Jesus to say is not the answer that he gave they didn't realize that this whole question that they gave him was a false dichotomy but again you can picture the question askers trying to hold back a smirk what will Jesus do now Indeed, he was in a tricky situation. They were trying to kill him. They were trying to trap him in order to kill him. But Jesus now responds, and it brings us to the second stage of the conflict here in this text. First, we have Jesus' sticky situation. Secondly, the second stage, Jesus' masterful wisdom. Jesus' masterful wisdom. And we see this in verses 23 through 25. Verses 23 through 25, we see that he surprises his adversaries. And we see his wisdom in three ways. First, we see his sharp perception. His sharp perception. Look at verse 23. He says, but he perceived their craftiness and then answered them. He perceived their craftiness. He wasn't fooled one bit. This is the part of the narrative in between uh, verse 22 and 23, uh, the part of the movie where the, the, the hero is in great trouble and the enemy is closing in and you as the, as the watcher are going, does he know that the enemy's there behind him? Does he know the tricks that are up his sleeve or is he going to get defeated? And then the hero whips out and begins to attack and he knows that they're there and you're like, ah, oh, he knows. Okay, it's okay, here he goes. He's on the offensive here and Jesus perceived he knew that they were being crafty he knew exactly what they were doing he knows that though their questions look white and innocent their hearts are in motives are anything but Matthew notes that Jesus knew their hypocrisy he knew they were fake they were merely actors in one sense instantly in perceiving that he could have said get out of here I don't deserve to give you an answer you fools, you fake fools. Just, he could have outed them right there, but he doesn't. He chooses to engage the question and he shows himself to be the greater victor in the midst of this conflict. So first we see his masterful wisdom in his sharp perception, but secondly we see it in his 
simple question. A simple question that he then gives in verse 24. He says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. So he asked to see a coin, a denarius. This is a coin that an average person was paid for a day's labor. They would finish their work for the day. They would get paid a denarius. And this was the coin that was required to pay the Roman tribute tax. And Jesus simply asks, whose likeness and inscription is on it? And they respond simply, it's Caesar's. Now we found through archaeology coins, denarii, fr denarii from this time period and one example of one uh, during this time period that uh, it reads this way. It says, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And it had then on the back a picture of his mother, uh, Livia, with the inscription, High Priest, celebrating the peace brought into the world by Rome. These coins had religious significance for the Roman Empire. And so in one sense, each of these coins broke birth both the first commandment and the second commandment. No gods and no images. No other gods and no images of a god. And yet, those broke both of those. And this is part of what enraged the Jews. In one sense, if they were trying to, to play clean and say, listen, we're not going to support this evil regime, they shouldn't even have that false image in their pocket. And yet Jesus says, show me denarius. And they go, oh yeah, hold on a minute. And they pull it out right there. And there it is, holding a image of a false god right in their hands. His simple question to them was masterful precisely because it was so elementary. They didn't have to even look to the coin probably. They knew what was on it, but he uses it as a teaching device for them. And so after his sharp perception, his simple question, he then gives his stunning instruction. His stunning instruction in verse 25. And here we will spend some time as we seek to understand what Jesus means here. After getting them to see Caesar's image on the coin, Jesus instructs them on what to do. And by doing so, he shows them that the either-or dilemma that he was set up with can be a both-and. It doesn't have to be either God or Caesar. It can be God and Caesar. But there's a right hierarchy in, the, in those two parties. The command Jesus gives here is translated as render. You'll see it there in verse 25. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The word literally means to pay back or to pay, to give back. And some translations render it this way. The point is that there are things that belong to Caesar and they should be given back to Caesar and there are things that belong to God and those should be given back to God. Simple enough. But he's highlighting the fact that there are things that belong to Caesar and God that are in the possession of the individual and thus then need to be given back. In other words, the rightful owners need to be paid back. And so Jesus threads the needle between two extremes and shows that there are things that belong to Caesar, like the denarius, that they should, they should be paid back to him. And likewise, Jesus said that there are things that belong to God that should be paid back to him. Surprisingly, the Jews can be loyal 
to Caesar in a limited way and still be loyal to God in an ultimate way. And it's here, again, that we need to pay attention to Jesus' instructions so that we might learn how it is that you and I, in our day and age, are to relate to God and to government. And so let's look at each of Jesus' statements in order. The first, give to Caesar what belongs to him. Give to Caesar what belongs to him. And we see this first part of verse 25. Jesus is pointing to the denarius that they had in their pocket. And he says that you carry this uh, in your pocket every day. It has Caesar's inscription on it and therefore it belonged to him. Jesus says you're simply to give, back, give it back when it is demanded. When taxes are due, you give it to, back to the owner. In saying this, Jesus affirmed the rightness of governments to tax their citizens. He was not a zealot or a revolutionary who encouraged his followers to buck against secular authority. Instead, he affirmed the civil government in this world is legitimate and should be recognized as such. However, from what he will say next, government is not the ultimate authority. Caesar is not the ultimate authority. There is one higher still who is God, Lord Almighty. And so therefore, there, the state, Caesar, the government, cannot demand ultimate allegiance, cannot demand ultimate obedience. There is a limit to the state's authority because nothing can compete with God. So to understand the role of government... Just to give us a broad survey, we need to go back to the beginning of how God instituted government. And we don't have time to look through this morning, but as we, if you look through the early chapters of Genesis, we find that government is to protect four things, four blessings given by God. God is given the freedom to worship. He's given family. He's given food for us to enjoy and eat upon this earth. And he's given us life. And government was set up to protect these things. They were to enable human flourishing upon this earth. To, as the Apostle Paul summarizes it in Romans chapter 13, they're to punish the evildoer and to reward the good. There is to be this helping humans inhabit this earth and to live safely. And so as these, we recognize that there is a limited role of government. God did not give government a ultimate role over all aspects of citizens' lives. There's a limited role. And that is true today. But still, Jesus says that there are some things that you and I owe to government, that you and I owe to the state. We must give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, obviously, Caesar isn't in power in our day, but we need to make the application to our own day that we need to give to government what is owed to government. I want to identify at least four things that we as Christians owe to government in our own day. First, and this is clearly seen here in this passage, is taxes. Taxes. Something we all love, right? Jesus affirms here in Luke 20 that taxes are indeed owed to the government and there is nothing wrong with this. That we as his followers should recognize that we are to give to the state, to government, what is owed to them. And the Apostle Paul teaches this explicitly in Romans chapter 13. And so I want to, to take you over there to Romans 13. We don't have time to, obviously, to expose this whole passage, but I want you to see some of the language that is here. 
because this is also a key text for understanding the Christian's relationship to government. Romans chapter 13, particularly verses 6 and 7, he says, Romans 13 verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I believe we can pick up echoes of what Jesus taught in our passage in Luke 20 and in the parallel passages here in Paul's writing. He recognized that there is something that we must pay, something that is owed to those in authority over us. And particularly he calls out first is paying of taxes. Paul makes it clear that taxes are owed to the government. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And this, by application, friends, this means that Christians are ones who should always pay their taxes. We should pay them truthfully. We should pay them honestly. We are not allowed to cheat on our taxes for this would be disobedient to the Lord because what is owed to Caesar, we must give. Now, even though we may disagree on the amount that is extracted, even though we may disagree on how those tax funds are spent, we do not have the allowance from our Lord to withhold taxes that are due to the government. We must pay our taxes fully and on time as we are able. Now, if there are things we disagree with, we live in a free society, we can speak up. There's legal recourse. We can seek to bring about change, but we cannot refrain from pain. Again, let's remember the governments that were in place when Jesus spoke and when Paul wrote. We have Caesar Tiberius, we have Caesar Nero, and yet they, Jesus and Paul taught that taxes were owed to those governments. And so I ask you, do you pay your taxes as God's word commands you to? It's fairly simple and straightforward, and yet this is what one of the implications of Jesus' words that is owed to government. But you'll notice that in the verses we read, there's something else that's owed to government. And actually, I want you to see it in verses 1 and 2 in Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 1. He said, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Very simply, we owe submission to our government. What do we owe? We owe taxes. We also owe submission. Paul is clear. Every person subject to the governing authorities. We submit to their authorities. Why? Because of the providence of God. We don't submit to governing authorities because they're ultimate. We submit to governing authorities because the ultimate one, God Almighty, has told us to do so. And God Almighty is the one that's placed them there. God has providentially put all governing authorities where they are. Whether it be presidents, kings, dictators, or emperors, God has sovereignly placed them there. He is in control of history. He is the one that sovereignly installs rulers and takes them down. And therefore, he says that if we resist these authorities that he has put in place, we will incur judgment. And so when we rebel against government, we rebel against God. Submission simply means to put oneself under the authority of another. We do not obey government blindly. We 
also recognize that government can not require any and everything that they want from us. As we said, there are limits upon their authority. And we have examples in scripture, right, of those who resisted against the demands of certain governments, even because they recognized that the things that they were being asked of were wrong. Think of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. They were called upon to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And at a certain time, everybody else bowed except for those three friends. They were thrown into the fiery furnace for their civil disobedience, and yet God rescued them. We also see in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel was called upon to stop praying to Almighty God, instead to, to pray to the king, and he refused to do so, and he stayed in his spot, and he prayed to the temple in Jerusalem, and he was then arrested and thrown into the lion's den, and we know that story, right? God rescued and protected Daniel. Well, we're reminded of the now infamous statement of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when they were instructed to stop preaching about Jesus. What do they say? We must obey God rather than men. And so generally speaking, friends, we are to be a submissive peace people. As Christians, we live, are to live peaceful and quiet lives in our countries. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 2, we are not rabble-rousers. There, is, there are times that we need to disobey, but those times should be the exception and not the rule for Christ's church. And so I simply ask you, how is your heart in giving submission to the governing authorities that God has placed over you? Or is it one of submission in your heart? Or is there more often one of rebellion and bucking against their authority? There's a third thing that we owe to government, and that is honor. Honor. You're like, wait, what? Yeah, honor. Ver Romans 13, verse 7. Pay to what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Paul is clear that respect and honor are, are due to people, even unbelieving wicked people. We are to honor those who serve in positions of authority in our country, even if they are unrighteous. Now, this doesn't mean that we approve of their unrighteousness. It doesn't mean that we praise them for their unrighteousness, but there should be an honor and a respect for the position that they hold, for the office that they hold. God's word tells us to do this. Christians should never be accused of bad-mouthing the authorities, whether that be local or federal. As voters, we can speak about their shortcomings, but it must be done with honor and respect. After saying in 1 Peter chapter 2 that all believers are to submit to the governing authorities, Peter concludes by saying this in 1 Peter 2 verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor Nero. He wasn't saying you should praise Nero for his unrighteousness, but because he's a governing authority, there's honor that is due to him. They were obviously not to worship him as the Roman emperor wanted, but they were to honor him. And so the question for us this morning is, can you honestly say that you speak of the authorities that are over you with honor and with respect, even if you disagree with their policies? The fourth thing that we owe to government, what is owed to them is prayers, prayers. Paul makes this clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is a thing that we owe to 
are governing authorities that many of them may not even want or even think that we are doing, but God's word instructs us to do so. Paul writes, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Folks, we owe our prayers to our authorities, for our authorities. And, and I got to be honest with you, as I'm going through this, I, I recognize I'm not praying enough for the leaders that are over us. I can leave it to the sovereignty of God to do what he will with them. But God's word has instructed us that we are to offer prayers and petitions and intercessions. This is to be a, an all-out prayer effort. The church should be an army of prayer warriors, not just for the success of the church, but also for the welfare of our nation and our leaders. We not only speak with honor, we pray out of honor for them. Prayer, when we pray to God for our leaders, we recognize that God is the one who installs them, that God is the one who is sovereign over them, and therefore we ask that he would work, that he would work in their lives, he'd work through them in their policies. And friends, I believe too often it's a lack of faith that our prayer would do anything. And yet we know we serve a mighty and powerful God who can do amazing things. May we strengthen our faith that we may be faithful to pray for our nation, for its leaders. And many of you are doing that. Many of you are very faithful in that. And I praise God for that. But I know there's others of us that we need to increase our prayers. We need to up our game in praying for the local, state, and national leaders that God has placed over us. And so the first part of Jesus' stunning instruction is that he said to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But there's a second part and a very crucial second part and that is to give to God what belongs to him. Give to God what belongs to him. This is back in Luke 20. This was the sucker punch to his enemies. In other words, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, you know, we give to God what is God's. Jesus is calling out these wicked spies and the people who sent them that in essence, they were not rendering unto God. They were not giving to God what God was owed. And so Jesus says, yes, you're to give Caesar what is owed to him, but you, friends, need to give to God what is owed to him. In essence, you're not doing that. They think, remember, the spies think that they're on God's side. They think that they are shutting down the blasphemer, Jesus, from Nazareth. But Jesus says, you're not on God's side. You have, not, have failed to give to God what is his. And so what is the implication? What is it that we give to God? Well, one sense you can say there's many things that we give to God and the scriptures delineate these things, but at the core of it, the core of it is that what we give to God is our very selves. Because remember the, the illustration. We, there's a coin that has the image of Caesar on it. That is Caesar's and it, it belongs to him. We, as human beings, have been stamped with the image of God. We've been made in God's image. Therefore, you and I are owed back to God. God owns us. We belong to him. And so, friends, this call to give back to God what belongs to him is a call to each and every one of us that we would submit 
that we would surrender ourselves to the living God. He has, he has made us. He has stamped us with his own image. We belong to him and him alone. And this doesn't mean that we simply give him our Sundays, that we simply throw some money in the offering plate. He isn't just asking for a little religion to be thrown into our lives. Oh no, his, his demand is much more costly than that. His demand is that he, we give our all. We give our total selves. That we give him all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. That we walk in all his ways, that we love him, that we serve him with gratitude. This is a high cost, isn't it? That we give up the agenda of our life and we instead submit ourselves to his agenda for our life and seek to follow in his ways. And this is why Jesus said that to be his disciple, you must renounce all things. In order to be his disciple, you must take up your cross daily and follow after him. We must die to ourselves, deny ourselves. To give to God what belongs to him means to die to ourselves. And this cost is high. It's uh, so high that we're all threatened by this demand. But folks, let me remind you that even though repenting of your sin and following Jesus is costly, it is totally worth it. Jesus says the narrow path that leads to life is hard, but it leads to life. Meanwhile, the wide road is easy and there's, it's popular. There's many people on it, but it leads to destruction. And so the question is, what road are you on? Who's, who's a... Uh, who do you confess allegiance to? Do you confess it to yourself? Do you confess it to the state? Or do you confess it to God and God alone? But the good news is that Jesus came and offered himself as a sacrifice for sin upon the cross and he rose again on the third day so that we might be set free from our bondage to self and sin. He paid the price that was owed to the Father because of our sin. He paid it totally and completely so that if we place our faith in him and trust in him and what he has done, that we are able to be welcomed into everlasting life. We're able to be welcomed into his family. Friends, if you're here this morning, if you have not completely given yourself to God, you have not surrendered to him and to his plan, then I encourage you to not leave today without talking to somebody. Seeing that you might know that you are on the straight and narrow, that you are truly on the path of life and not on the wide road that leads to destruction. There is forgiveness for all who would humble their hearts and surrender all to Jesus Christ. Well, we've seen how Jesus' stunning instruction was short, but it packed a punch. And now it's going to send those slimy serpents back into their dens. And so we see just briefly the third and final stage of this conflict between Jesus and his enemies and that is Jesus' temporary triumph. Jesus' temporary triumph. Look at verse 26. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said but marveling at his answer they became silent. His enemies challenged him to a duel and he bested them. First there was a failed trap. They tried to get him but it didn't work. They were unable to trap him. He was wiser and escaped their clutches. But secondly, he silenced their enemy. He silenced the enemies. They were stunned and surprised. They couldn't believe that they were outgunned. So they shrunk back in silence, marveling at his reply. They were actually impressed at a certain level. 
But it's here on this Tuesday of Passion Week as Jesus duels with these religious leaders that Jesus wins every single time. And yet they are so bloodthirsty that they cannot see through their murderous intent and they will stop at nothing until Jesus is slain. As I said at the beginning, friends, this text doesn't touch on everything relating to Christians in government. But it does give us a good starting point, a crucial starting point for understanding that we have a citizenship in heaven and we owe our ultimate allegiance to God. And yet we are citizens here upon this earth and there are things that we must render to the governing authorities. We must give our whole selves to God and because we do that, there is a part of us that we can give to the government. As faithful Christians, we must get our priorities straight and ask God to help us to be faithful in all these arenas. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we are humbled when we consider the demands that you have upon us. That we must give our total selves to you. That we must surrender all to your sovereign authority. Father, we recognize the mighty and great claim that that is. And we recognize that we cannot do that on our own. There's too much that we love about ourselves and our control. But I pray, Father, that you this morning would enable us to surrender completely and fully to you. That you would not enable us to to hold anything back. May we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, as you have placed us in this world, we are not out of this world, but we are in it. And we live in a country, and we are citizens of a country on this earth. We must be faithful as obedient followers of your word to submit to the governing authorities around us. And so I ask that you would help us to think through these things. Help us to be faithful to you as we live peaceful and quiet lives as citizens of this country. And Father, we do pray for our nation. We pray for its leaders. That you would bring about reformation. That you would cause the secular project of rejecting Christ, of, of the state claiming to be God, claiming to be sovereign would be failed, a failed experiment. Lord, may you draw our nation back to some of the founding principles that it began upon. Ultimately, Lord, we know this won't happen apart from a revival. People, hearts being awakened, spiritual life being given. We pray that you would guide our leaders that they would walk in your ways, that they'd be humbled before your mighty hand and that you might lead them to enact policies and laws that would be the best for our nation and for generations to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.